From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And on today's show, writers Kathleen Bennett Bastis, John Peelmeyer, and John Gredler share different takes on their experiences in nature and the great outdoors. Mount Sopris. The dramatic northern sentinel of the Elk Mountain Range rose like a picture postcard from the verdant river valley of Carbondale, Colorado. He started a summer camp, offering two weeks of peeing in outhouses and swimming in water so cold it hurt, and campfires with ghost stories and songs with the word damn in them. On the drive up to Camp Siwanoi, we stopped for lunch at a picnic area by the side of the road. As my mother unpacked sandwiches, I began to cry. And on today's Between the Lines segments, Tom McCaffrey reflects on writing that can move him and others to tears. There is nothing more moving than observing someone else respond emotionally to your writing. It is thrilling and terrifying in the same moment. That's coming up right now on Read 650. Naturalist John Muir wrote, Climb the mountains and get their good tidings. Nature's peace will flow into you as sunshine flows into trees. The winds will blow their own freshness into you and the storms their energy, while cares will drop off like autumn leaves. For today's show, we've selected three personal stories from an event we called The Great Outdoors, which played to a full house at Nancy Manicharian's The Cell on West 23rd Street in New York City. We begin with Kathleen Bennett Bastis. Kathleen is a mixed media artist whose work celebrates the inherent beauty of found objects that are cast off, washed up, worn out, and walked over. She's also a talented writer and a frequent contributor to Read 650 who often opened our live shows as she does today with her story about nature's majesty, magnificence, and well, something else. Here's Kathleen Bennett Bastis, recorded live at the Self Theater in New York City, reading Mount Sopris. Mount Sopris. The dramatic northern sentinel of the Elk Mountain Range rose like a picture postcard from the verdant river valley of Carbondale, Colorado. Just shy of 13,000 feet, it cast a majestic, rugged profile against the cloudless early summer sky as my friend Carl and I readied supplies for a short three-day climb. One day to set up a base camp on the lake, one full day for our round-trip ascent up a rocky scramble to the snow-dusted summit, with the final day spent at the lake basking in our achievement before trekking out. Setting out on the first day, we hiked through magnificent alpine meadows, bursting with an exuberant array of wildflowers. It was magical in its quiet, stunning beauty. The meadow, untamed and unspoiled, drew us in as we lingered in the sun and lay down amid the colorful abundance of blooms. Bugs buzzed, birds floated high, their feathers, edges rippling as the wind currents carried them aloft. You couldn't help 
but feel connected to the natural ebb and flow of the cycle of life. Gradually, the territory transitioned from sunny meadow to thick stands of aspen, evergreens, and mountain laurel, and a more challenging incline. As we ventured deeper into the woods, making our way to the camp at the lake, the mosquito population increased dramatically. Usually, for some happy reason, bloodsuckers don't take an interest in me. But now, apparently, my pheromones had transformed into some sort of irresistible bug aphrodisiac, and they couldn't get enough. Somewhere in the kingdom, a silent dinner bell had rung. And we were the blue plate special. The mosquitoes became so thick that when I brushed them off my forearm, it seemed as if they'd merged into some kind of winged, detachable fur. I feared I was going to start to inhale those that hovered around my face. Carl pulled on his knit hat to cover his shaved head and, in hopeful defense, zipped his jacket up to his chin. When we finally arrived at the lake, I made a beeline for the dip, foolishly imagining I'd wash off whatever was attracting the thirsty, buzzing throngs that fought over the scant bits of my exposed flesh. At first, as I slid into the water and gazed out over its cool, still expanse, I thought I was seeing some sort of heat-generated mirage, but quickly realized that the shimmering on the water's surface was, in fact, billions of mosquitoes that must have just participated in some primordial hatching frenzy. By the time I returned to camp, Carl was zipped inside the tent. Let's just say he was not a happy camper. Crawling in beside him, I could see the faint silhouettes of thousands of those wretched, biting multitudes banging into the nylon sides and clinging to the patches of screen on the window and door. They were patient, they were hungry, and they were not going anywhere. As thick as the hovering hordes were outside, the frustrated, angry vibe inside the tent was palpable. It was clear that there was no way we'd be able to leave our nylon sanctuary without literally being eaten alive. Unfortunately, not that it would have made much difference, we had neglected to pack bug repellent. Still, I considered taking my chances with the swirling, pulsing mob rather than be a prisoner inside the tent with my thoroughly pissed-off, bug-bite-welted companion. Eventually, after weighing the odds, we packed up and turned our backs to Sopris. As we trekked down the same trail we had hiked up, 
with such enthusiasm only hours before, I recalled the words in a post about the mountain. The experience here can be good or bad, one that you won't ever want to forget or an experience that you will want to forget, but you can't. <laughs> Kathleen Bennett Bastis curates the streets, riverbanks, and scrapyards, collecting detached bits and fragments, allowing them to start the conversation that guides the direction of a piece of her art. As a former producer for talk radio, she wrote hundreds of short, descriptive five-minute segments about neighborhoods, restaurants, product alerts, or shopping experiences in the tri-state area. She lives, writes, and creates in New York City and the Hudson River Valley. John Peelmeyer began his career with the play and movie Agnes of God. Since then, he's had three more plays mounted on Broadway and over 25 film, television movies, and miniseries produced. Here's John Peelmeyer on stage in New York City reading Milkman. He came to our school when I was in fourth grade, and almost immediately he was surrounded by boys. He was young and virile and handsome. All of our mothers were a little bit in love with him. Most of us came from Polish or German families whose traditions allowed for no physical affection between men and boys, fathers and sons, but he was a priest, and that made all the difference. He came to our houses and ate with us and blessed us when he left. I remember my dad kneeling beside me as he stood over us and swept his hand balletically through the air. You're the only one who ever asks for my blessing, he told me. I felt special, as if Christ really approved of me. He hugged and kissed his boys in public. We were malnourished, and he was the milkman. We crowded around him as we might the Pope or Elvis, pressing to touch him, praying he would touch us back. He had his favorites. His closest apostles were athletic and a little rough. Then came the in-betweens, the disciples whom, for whatever reason, he would not allow into his inner circle unless there was a temporary opening at the table. I was in the third tier, a group of tagalongs who were too shy or unathletic or perhaps just too vulnerable for his embrace. One night, he took a carload of us to a scary movie in another town, and driving back through the dark mountains, he told us of a panther living in the hollows that preyed on helpless children. Just then the car stalled, and he pulled to the side of the road and got out to check the engine, and we all huddled in the back seat and giggled and knew he was pulling our legs, but maybe he wasn't. Afterwards, he flashed a smile. Oh, ye of little faith. He started a summer camp offering two weeks of peeing in outhouses and swimming in water so cold it hurt and campfires with ghost stories and songs with the word damn in them. We all sang, boys who never sang, who found singing sissified and shameful would sing for him. More than anything, I wanted to go to his camp, but my parents couldn't afford it. It cost $35 a week, which was not in our budget. When he invited me to come for free, I could only hope that mom and dad 
who were too proud to, for charity would allow it into their home just this once. On the morning that I was to catch the bus for the great outdoors, my mother pressed into my hand a check for $35. Give it to him, she said. Don't let him say no. I was terrified. He had offered to change the water to wine at absolutely no charge to the bridegroom, and I had to refuse. It took me two days to approach him, and when I did and handed him the check, he tried to give it back. My mother said, you have to take it. I insisted. I was ashamed to come near him after that. His generosity had cost my parents money, exposing our secret. We were poor. Some days later, I stood at the swimming pool, shivering after a brief dip into the killing cold. I heard a voice inviting me near. He was sitting on the diving board in his swimsuit, soaking wet. And when I went to him, he lifted me onto his lap and wrapped his arms around me. The soft hairs of his chest pressed against my bare back. The water from his forehead baptized my cheeks. I felt special, as if he loved me. Years later, I saw him again, bald, fey, surrounded by boys. He didn't remember me. John Pielmeyer's work has won and been nominated for many awards, including the Emmy Award and the Golden Globe. His stage adaptation of The Exorcist is bound for Broadway, and Scribner published his first novel, Book's Tale. He lives and writes in Garrison, New York. John Gredler, poet and memoirist, is a frequent contributor to Read 650. For today's Great Outdoors show, John recalls a childhood adventure at summer camp. Here's John Gredler reading Tenderfoot. On the drive up to Camp Siwanai, we stopped for lunch at a picnic area by the side of the road. As my mother unpacked sandwiches, I began to cry. I did not want to go. My grandparents looked away. My sister Jeannie sat on the wooden table, twisting her hands between her knees, her face hidden behind her long, dark hair. My mother at first tried to comfort me, then grew angry with me when I could not stop. When my father found out I failed the swim test, he drove all the way up from his house in New Jersey. You know how to swim, he said to me, annoyed. He, ar <laughs> he arranged for me to take the test again, but first brought me down to the lake and told me to swim the two laps. I did. Why didn't you do that before, he asked. I had no answer. When the counselor showed up, I swam the first lap, then turned and stopped. My father, looking small from that distance, implored, come on, John, you can do it. Dad turned to the counselor. He just did it for me. God damn it, John, he yelled. It echoed on the empty lake. The counselor looked at his watch, shook his head, and walked away. I dog paddled back to the dock and pulled myself up. Why didn't you do it? 
What's wrong with you? I had no answer. A few days later, we were preparing for our first overnight hike, stuffing our backpacks with mess kits and extra socks, filling our canteens. The sleeping bag my mother bought me was made of thick brown cloth. It did not fit snug onto the backpacks like all the others. As we stood on the packed dirt in front of our tent, I was still struggling. Come on, Gredler, get it together or you stay behind. I started to cry, the other boys shuffling their feet, turning away. As it began to rain, my friend John Coughlin came over and helped me tie down the bag as best we could. When we marched off single file onto the trail, the rain turned to a downpour. My sleeping bag, already unwieldy, was now half soaked and heavier, leaning to one side. I kept having to move it back to center, then adjust it again when it shifted to the other side. Our tribe was the Dakota. The scoutmasters were preparing us for the marching competition leading up to the big jamboree. We had to dress in full uniform and turn out for daily inspection of our neckerchiefs and caps, and especially the garters and knee socks we wore with our shorts. They had to be straight. Every morning we marched up and down the big hill. At the beginning of the second week, my legs started to hurt. The inside had turned red and tender. <clears throat> I scraped it a few days before leaving home for camp when I slipped on the bleachers at Cargill Field. The head scoutmaster told me to march it off. <laughs> it was only when I started limping that he sent me to the infirmary. Over the next two days, my legs swelled up to twice the size and I fell into a high fever. I had vivid hallucinations of Jesus dragging his cross up the hill to our campsite, <laughs> blood oozing out of the crown of thorns into his face, scoutmasters on either side shouting at him to keep time. <laughs> when my fever broke, the, the nurse let me drink birch beer and eat potato chips. A doctor came to see me and carried me to his red convertible MG. As we drove down a winding road, he explained to me that they needed to take an x-ray. Then he said, you're going home. John Gredler is a recipient of the Katherine Gerfine Fellowship from the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College, and his work has been published in Atticus Review, Narratively, The Sun Magazine, Westchester Review, Talking Writing, and others. John lives with his family in Tuckahoe, New York. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Mayer, Karen Ducasse, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and our show was produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. 
Support for Read 650 comes from Nancy Manicharian's The Cell in New York City. Dedicated to the incubation and presentation of new works by emerging artists, The Cell has produced over a dozen critically acclaimed world premieres of new plays and musicals and serves as a home base for a large community of resident artists and organizations, such as Blackboard Reading Series, Artists Without Walls, and Tribeca New Music. View details and performance schedules at thecelltheater.org. Tom McCaffrey is a born and bred New Yorker who had a long career as a successful entertainment attorney in Manhattan. For today's Between the Lines segment, Tom McCaffrey explores the connection between writing and emotion with Real Writers Week. I remember back when I was first writing short stories. I was attending writing classes at the New School in Manhattan, just above the West Village on 14th Street. This was the late 70s. A year before I attended Lehman College, wrote a play, and then put my writing on hold for a few decades. My closest friend in the new school was Lou Myers. Lou was an older man in his early 70s. He was an accomplished cartoonist and had published a number of short stories in literary magazines, such as The New Yorker. He knew what it took to be successful in the real world and not just the ivory towers of the university setting. I was in my 20s and was desperate to make it as a writer. I hung on his every word. Lou told me that he first recognized that I had the goods to be a writer when he read one of my stories called Why Kings Die, a fictional interpretation of the tragic life and death of a friend, Tom Delaney. Lou told me that you are not a writer until you have written something that not only makes your readers weep, but makes you weep while you are writing it. I thought that was interesting coming from a cartoonist who liked to make people laugh. His cartoons were as hilarious as they were blasphemous and profane. His short stories were touching and sweet, but also had some funny moments. Although I had not admitted it to anyone, being a tough, macho, Irish-American construction worker at the time, I had wept when I wrote parts of Why Kings Die. I had also witnessed my father's secretary weep when she read the story. There is nothing more moving than observing someone else respond emotionally to your writing. It is thrilling and terrifying in the same moment. Anyway, fast forward four decades. When I was writing The Wise Ass, I wept when imagining and writing the backstory of the central character, Claire the Mule. When writing the sequel, I wept again when writing about the resolution of a life journey based on a real event. This morning, while I was writing the latest chapter in the third novel, KMAG, I wept again over the unspoken terminality of a final parting between two siblings. The characters knew it, but it remained unsaid. So, write and weep. Tom McCaffrey relocated with his wife to a small town in northern Colorado to follow a road less traveled and return to his first passion, writing. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show where writers contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you'll also find open submission calls for upcoming shows. Please check it out to see what inspires you to share your story. That's our show for today. Thanks again to writers Kathleen Bennett-Bastis, John Peelmeyer, 
John Gredler, and Tom McCaffrey. For more Read 650, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And thanks so much for listening and for spreading the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.